Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies. I'm Ben Peterson. I've got Christopher Hurtado here with me again today, and we are going to be discussing Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2 today. This is what we affectionately call the Christmas story, so to speak. These probably are the most familiar Bible passages to Christians. These often get read at private family gatherings, you know, during Christmas time. Sometimes they'll do a reenactment of the birth with the angels and the wise men, right? And the the baby Jesus to commemorate the birth of Jesus. Christopher, we are recording this, you know, just like what, four or five days before Christmas, but it's not going to be released till after Christmas. So, all the things that we get to comment on this, they won't ruin anybody's Christmas this year. Thank goodness. <laughs> so on that point, we are going to talk over some historical things going on here. The context of these chapters kind of point out some of the historical issues going on. Even the books, Ben. And the books, yeah. Then as we contextualize that within the history, then we'll also discuss, you know, how is this presently relevant to us as we go through the text? We're going to, again, go through the reading of it. Christopher, you're going to read through this so people will hear your beautiful bass voice (laughs) narrate Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. Before we get to that, though, there was a couple points we wanted to bring up from last week. And And one that stood out to me as we were discussing some things before the recording, Christopher, was in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, Luke talks about his decision, so to speak, of writing this gospel. I didn't quite catch it at first, but there is a pretty stark difference between the translations that we find in the King James and in the NRSV. And so I want to read that verse, Luke chapter 1, verse 3, in the King James, and then I want to read it in the NRSV. And we'll discuss a difference in the translation there, which goes to a broader overall point that we're going to make and bring up again as we discuss the reading this week. So here's Luke chapter 1, verse 3, from the King James Version. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. So then I'm going to go to the NRSV, Luke chapter 1, verse 3. It says, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The main difference I'm going to focus on here is the use of these words in the NRSV. It says, after investigating everything carefully, And then in the KJV saying, having had a perfect understanding of all things. Definitely to me, there seems like a pretty big difference between these these words, you know, having investigated versus having a perfect understanding. And when we went and looked at the Greek on this, 
we did discover that it does seem like the NRSV is much truer to the actual Greek words that we're looking at here than the KJV. What seems to be going on to me, Christopher, and you can make comments on this if you like, is that in the King James Version, we have something like the translators have a desire to make this text be a little more authoritative than maybe even Luke might have originally intended. And so they're going to say things like a perfect understanding, right? That that lays this out as solid, unadulterated, pure truth, right? As opposed to what Luke is saying is, I did a bunch of research and investigation, and I'm going to give you an account based on what I understand, right? What are your thoughts on that, Christopher? Yeah, I'd say, you know, the the NRSV does come closer to the Greek as we have it. The other thing to consider when it comes to the KJV, and, and it could just be what you said, Ben, but something else to think about when it comes to KJV is the manuscripts that the King James scholars had weren't the manuscripts that we have. We have better manuscripts than they had. So they actually did a really good job of translating the manuscripts that they had, which doesn't mean that they didn't do what you said, Ben. They could have done that still with this verse. But they didn't have the manuscripts that we have now. And so one of the reasons we recommend the NRSV is that it's just a translation from better manuscripts. Now, it has maybe less of a theological bent, but at the same time, I don't get the impression reading my NRSV study Bible that it isn't Christian. I mean, first of all, all the books of the Hebrew Bible are ordered in the Protestant order, just like in my Bible, right? And the comments seem Christian, right? I think the authors are Christian. This isn't a Jewish study Bible we're reading. It's a Christian study Bible. No, there's definitely Christian influence going on here. I just think that we have less of a drive to maintain a particular narrative or theological tradition than we might see in the King James. At least that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. And it's important to, to realize, too, that these texts are not written down by eyewitnesses. This is the gospel according to Luke. doesn't mean Luke wrote it. It means, if I were Luke, this is what I would say. And maybe I heard Luke say these things. This is the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to Matthew, right? So this is what Matthew would say. This is what Luke would say. These are written a generation after the death of Jesus, right? So it's some time has gone by. And some are early. You know, Mark is the earliest gospel it doesn't have a birth narrative at all. There's no nativity story in Mark to talk about. That's why we're not talking about it. And John is so far out there in left field, so different from the other three gospels in so (laughs) many ways that it also doesn't come into this conversation at all. And Matthew looks like he may have gotten some of his material from Luke. Luke tells us about these sources that he's either investigated or has a perfect understanding of, depending on which translation you go by. But they both drew from Mark. We know that from the things that they have in common. And they perhaps all three, well, not all three, they they drew from Mark and Mark drew from an earlier hypothetical source called Q for source. That's just from the German, the source. And we know this because we we can see the things that they have in common and the kind of wisdom Jesus-y type sayings that are in there. And in 1945, with the discovery of the Nag Hammadi texts, we get the Gospel of Thomas, which looks a lot like the hypothetical Gospel of Q and gives us a good sense or a good clue that that was a good hypothesis. And yet, with these two chapters, while they do seem to be narrating similar events or circumstances in some ways, have very unique details within them, right? So Matthew isn't going to talk about 
the birth really at all of Jesus. He's just going to say, okay, this happened. And then he goes into a whole narrative about the wise men, right? And then Luke is going to talk about the specific circumstances of Jesus's birth and, and more intimate details maybe of the family situation. And then we get the temple and stuff. So we've got unique details within each of these stories, even though they purport to be talking about the same time period, so to speak, of, of Jesus's life. Right. And so to get the nativity story that you hinted at earlier, but didn't name, right? The nativity, that's what we call these reenactments, you know, whether it's a school play or when we read it. And in my family, we read from Luke every Christmas morning before we open presents. My son has always read Luke chapter two, but it turns out that if you want to get the nativity story, quote unquote, it's not in Luke. My wife chose Luke. I think it's a good choice. It works, but it doesn't have the details that Matthew has and vice versa. So if you want a nativity story, you have to bring these two separate and distinct accounts together. And that works on the one hand, just because there is no mention of wise men in Luke and no mention of shepherds in Matthew doesn't mean that there weren't wise men and shepherds. There's a different focus, but we'll see as we continue through the New Testament that at some point the differences become sometimes contradictory. Not in the case of the example I just gave, but in some cases you get contradictions. Well, whereas in our commemorative reading of this, we will often include the wise men. For me, it was always pointed out that they obviously weren't present there at the birth. And when you read Matthew chapter two, there's no mention of the wise men being present at the birth. So, you know, that's it's obvious there. So yeah, I'm not seeing any particular contradictions, but these stories definitely have different details going on in them. They're talking about different periods here. And the authors have different purposes. And that's clear, you know, with Matthew in particular, we know that it's really important for him to show that all the prophecies about the Messiah are fulfilled by Jesus. And by the way, that includes not only the Messiah, but the suffering servant, which gets conflated with, with the Messiah. Whereas the suffering servant is not called the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible, in our Old Testament. He brings the suffering servant and Messiah together as one, again, conflated into one. And of course, we showed as we went through the Old Testament, Ben, how the prophecies about the Messiah and what was said about the suffering servant, the text itself told us who these people were and that they've already shown up. They showed up in the context of the Old Testament. So what Matthew's doing is he's giving us how Jesus is also the Messiah. Can I put it that way? Yeah. Yeah, I think that works. So as I like to say, Jesus is the Christ, but the Christ is bigger than Jesus. There's more to Christ than Jesus. As a matter of fact, we're called on to be Christ's ourselves. And there were these Christ or these Messiahs, right? Messiah is the, is the Hebrew or from the Hebrew, Mashiach, and Christ from Christos, from the Greek. They mean the same thing, the anointed one. So the anointed one is more than just Jesus, although Jesus is the anointed one. And Christ is a title. You know, we've mentioned this before. It's not Jesus's last name, yeah. right? It's not like Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and they had Jesus Christ as their son, right? Christ is this title. And I don't know a lot about how names worked, but typically you just referenced a person by whose son they were. So that's why later in the in the Gospels, we get Jesus, Joseph's son, right? right. Or sometimes Mary's son, depending on you know the focus of, of the scripture. There isn't a mention of him by Christ being his name. You know, we don't really get that until Paul, and Paul is always calling him that. So that's a big deal for him. 
And since you brought it up, even in this week's reading in Luke 2, the text calls Joseph the father of Jesus, not in the KJV translation, but in the Greek and in the NRSV. Yeah. That's what we get. And we also get that Joseph and Mary don't seem to know as much about Jesus as at least you and I felt like they should, right? After last week's reading. <laughs> Having seen angels that talk specifically about who he is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's it's kind of interesting. And they certainly don't know as much as John. John knows a lot more than they do. And that comes later. Well, let's go into the text, Ben. Reading first from Matthew 2, we get first the visit of the wise men. Again, in Matthew, you have the wise men. and Luke, you have the shepherds. So we're going to get the wise men. And in these first 23 verses of this chapter, we're going to get the infant Jesus is going to be linked to Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth, all three links having theological significance, right? We also have that in verses 1 through 12, when the kings, or the we call them the three kings sometimes, the wise men, the magi, we'll go into what, that, what the Greek word means a little more, we could call them diviners, they come and they pay homage to the true king, not to Rome's client King Herod, as covered in our introduction to the New Testament, but to the true king, the king of the Jews. And so this is already a little bit subversive from the start, from the get-go. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Now, again, they could be called diviners. It is interesting, again, to note that they're going to pay homage to Jesus, but not to Herod. We know that Herod the Great died in 4 BCE, and so that gives us sort of an end date for Jesus' birth. It has to be sometime before the death of Herod, right? So we have told you in the introduction that it's somewhere between 6 and 4 BCE, and interestingly, same time as Seneca. But we didn't mention this in the introduction, right? There are letters, forgeries between Seneca and Paul. Yeah that were intended to give more credence to Christianity, right? But they're forgeries. Yeah, where Seneca is calling Paul this great mind of their time and everything. Right. And Seneca, for those who don't know, is the Stoic philosopher. He was the tutor to Nero, a billionaire in his time, power broker, right? Other Stoics, like Marcus Aurelius, is a, an emperor. And yet there's Epictetus, who's a slave. His name means owned. So that's Seneca. This title of king, by the way, is only given by Rome. So again, it's a little bit subversive right away to think of Jesus as a king or to mention Jesus as a king. Another term for these magi or these wise men, right? Christopher would be astrologers. These are Parthian or Persian priests traditionally from the East. That's why the star is significant to them. You said diviners, but you know they're also looking at the stars to sort of guide their lives and, and events of the cosmos. Right. So now we're going to get that Bethlehem is going to become more significant than it really ever was in the Hebrew Bible. This is actually a combination of two different scriptures. It's principally from Micah, but there's a line that's slipped in from 2 Samuel 5.2. Right. So it's just kind of interesting how it's quoted as if it's this one scripture, but it's actually two smashed together. And I had never realized that before. It was an interesting point. And all of a sudden, Bethlehem becomes more precise, more prominent, more relevant than it ever was in the Old Testament. Verse 2, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. 
another translation for that. We've given so many words for these magi, right? They're dream interpreters. They're magicians. They're a little bit of everything, apparently, right, Ben? (laughs) (laughs) They're wise men. They're wise men. I think that's a good, yeah. Remember Old Testament. Remember, you know, the the Persian or the Babylonian courts where you had Daniel or, you know, and, and they interpret dreams, Right, Daniel interprets dreams. If we go all the way back to Joseph, which already has come up in Matthew, right? Joseph has dreams, and it's going to come up again. Joseph has dreams, and these wise men are are there. You know, they're dream interpreters. That's right. And so these motifs are are coming up, but they're making ties and allusions back to these Old Testament themes that we saw with this star coming up. You know, one of the other translations says not just star in the east, but star at its rising. And so the idea here is that the star isn't just there, it's actually moving. And we're going to get to that later when, you know, it comes and it says that it stops over where the baby is. Again, the astrologers are not just seeing the stars, they're seeing the movement of stars and the patterns of the movements of stars tell things to them. And that's what they're seeing in this star that's rising in the east. That's interesting, isn't it? And the storytelling, it's a, it's difficult to imagine that one could, you know, go, I would challenge you, Ben, go outside, pick a star and tell me whose house it's over. <laughs> right. Yeah. What does that mean? How could they say that this is over his house? My only thought here on that is that, again, we haven't even gotten to the verse yet, but the star kept moving as a sign that they should keep moving. And when they were to stop, the star stopped moving, something like that. Interesting. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel." Now, here we're getting a quote from Micah 5.2. And I think it's important to note, Ben, that Judea here is not the entire province, the Roman multi-ethnic province of Judea. It's just the Jewish heartland, which is you know Jerusalem and the temple. Right. Bethlehem's only a few miles from Jerusalem. It's the ancestral homeland of the tribe of Judah. Exactly. Whereas we do have historically that there's a province of Rome called Judea, which is much larger. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. There it is. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, it's interesting because the wise men come to his house. When When we take Matthew 2 and Luke 2 and smush them together then the wise men come to the manger, right? They come to the inn right, <laughs> where Jesus is lying in the manger. But here they come to his house, which is much more realistic for when they arrive on the scene, right? Mm-hmm. Later on. And by the way, in some cultures, it's the three kings or wise men who bring the gifts and you don't get your presents till January 6th, right? Right. January 6th. Yeah. <laughs> 
So a couple other things about this star, Christopher. You know, we we often tell this story about the wise men following the star, and, and these are astrologers and everything. But then, on the other hand, astrology and these types of divination are very much considered occult outside of Christian tradition. And yet here we are telling this story about Jesus's birth every year, and that's actually what's going on. So you know. You sit and you ask yourself, can we learn something about Christ from the stars? Yeah. You know, another thing here that could be going on is that this reference to a star is symbolic. It's an allusion maybe to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It says, a star shall come out of Jacob, right? So remember, Matthew is trying to put in every reference he can possibly get to Jesus in the Old Testament, right? And so anything that is going to fit within that story, he's going to put it in there. And so this possibly is what's going on here where this idea of the star comes from within Matthew's narrative is Numbers 24, 17. That's right. I have a couple other things I wanted to mention about this first. One is about the number of kings. Ben, how many kings or how many wise men or magi are there? When I go look at my manger set, Christopher, it's always three. That's right. So that's what it is. And right here in Matthew, we read no such thing, right? It's interesting because we, we've always said, right, as Christians, that there are three wise men. And there are three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But this text doesn't tell us that there are three wise men. That's a medieval expansion. Not this text. That's right. Yeah, that comes from the Middle Ages. There are other, you know, types of of texts that actually not only say three, but they give us their names. But not until much later. That's right. So I did a little research on some of these gifts. I want to give an updated version of the value of these gifts. But in the ancient context, these things were necessary. The, the frankincense and myrrh are resins from plants that are necessary for anointing, for embalming, right? Corpses. And of course, gold is, 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 is valuable. What is gold worth today? A gram today, the day we're recording this, $57.61. To this day, gold is valuable, right? Yeah. But let's talk about frankincense and myrrh. I asked my wife, who happens to buy and sell essential oils, how much does it cost to buy some essential oil of frankincense? It turns out it's $100 for 15 milliliters. Hmm. That's pricey. It is. Myrrh is $89 for 15 milliliters. Now let's compare that with the cheapest there is that she knows of. Wild orange, 15 bucks. So 15 versus 89 or 100, right? But there are more expensive oils, it turns out. I asked her and she told me rose essential oil is $366 for five milliliters. Not 15, five. I'm not sure why. (laughs) But there's, there's frankincense, there's myrrh. I personally use a goat's milk soap with frankincense, and I feel like a king every time I take a shower. I love it. (laughs) Verse 12, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Now we get the escape to Egypt. This again is going to bring us into, into connection with Joseph, Moses, right? The Passover, all of these themes from the Old Testament. And as a matter of fact, the freedom from slavery that that includes, and and all the political implications that come along with that, right? One of the things I think that stands out to me here is just about the importance of dreams as a function of revelation for these people here in this story. You know, we already talked about the stars for them, but dreams become important for these people as well, you know? And 
one of the things for us to ponder is, you know, what if revelation can come in many more ways than we're used to? What if revelation comes to others in ways that would be unrecognizable to you or uncomfortable to you? Right. Good question. Well, let's leave that open. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. So here, Christopher, is where we get the idea that Jesus might have been about two years old when these wise men visit him. It says they come into the house, right? The idea here is that Herod asks them, when did this star appear? They tell him that was something like two years ago, right? So they've been traveling for two years. So that's why Herod goes and then says, okay, we're going to kill everybody that's two years or younger. At least that seems to be sort of the justification for this idea that I've heard that Jesus is around two years old when the wise men come to visit him. That's right. Yeah. And this story, of course, reminds us of Moses and the Passover. Mm -hmm. And yet it is not attested in our historical sources, right? Outside of the Bible, we don't get any attestation of this event of the killing of all the, of the, all the children under two. Right. It's not necessarily out of character for Herod. He was actually really brutal to his rivals, especially anybody that would have claimed to be a king. But there's nothing that says he did anything like this. So this seems to really be more of an illusion, an echo of Egypt again, with the Pharaoh killing all the male children. Right. Right. And that's how Moses was then saved. So very much a similar theme going on. You remind me, Ben, I read a biography. I'll call it a biography of Jerusalem mm. rather than a person's life. It was it was the story of Jerusalem. It was by Simon Sebag Montefiore. And it's so interesting because it's a great way to, to, to learn some history. Right? You sit in one place, you're just going to be looking at Jerusalem and you watch the kingdoms come and go over millennia. Yeah. And what I remember from that book was Somebody became king, killed all his male relatives. Somebody else became king, killed all his male relatives. And it's just over and over and over. That's all you get. So here we have again the son coming out of Egypt, right? Out of Egypt have I called my son. This is a reference to Hosea 11.1. 1. Now again, in, the, in that context in which it, where it comes from, my son, my son is the nation of Israel. The Israelites are my son and they're delivered from slavery in Egypt. And so this idea of going into Egypt is historically credible because people sought refuge there. Abraham, Jacob's clans, right? We see that. But again, the idea that somebody comes out of Egypt and is my son, this again in the original context refers to Israel. Now we have the massacre of the infants. Again, reminding us of the Exodus 1, 15 through 22. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently acquired of the wise men. The coasts here really just means the whole surrounding district. We're not talking about seashores. The scripture cited here that this is going to come from 
in these next verses is from Jeremiah 31.15. It's making another allusion to Rachel, the wife of Jacob, right? The mother of Joseph and Benjamin. So she's weeping in this allusion for her sons, Joseph and Benjamin, who in one account, both have been lost. Rama is near the traditional location of the tomb of Rachel. So that's why she would be associated with this event here. So the motif of a of a mother mourning the loss of her children it seems to be a symbolic representation of the oppressed, mournful state of the Jews at this time. They're under the oppressive rule of Rome. So just as God saved Moses to deliver his oppressed people, his oppressed children from Egypt, a new deliverer is born and is being protected by God, is going to be raised up to deliver his people. Right. And whereas here it's referring to, the, you know, there's a quote from Jeremiah 31.15, and it's Matthew's having it referred to Jesus, but it's originally referring to the exile of the northern tribes to Assyria. So a completely different context. Right. So going into the part that you mentioned, 17 and 18, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. And as you mentioned, Christopher, the reference here in Jeremiah is talking about that exile of the northern kingdom, which was the kingdom of, of Ephraim, who's son of Joseph, right? So these are the children of Rachel. That's why that, again, becomes contextualized here under her name, because that's the northern kingdom that has been taken into exile. Yeah, at this point, I'd like to add something, Ben, to what I said earlier. Again, Matthew wants to make these Old Testament prophecies fit Jesus of Nazareth, right? So that he can be the Christ as prophesied. I can't know this, of course, but I don't think that Matthew thinks or thought that the Old Testament prophets were thinking about Jesus of Nazareth, you know, who didn't exist yet as far as they were concerned, right? I, I know that there are narratives in which we imagine or think or say that all of those prophets of the Old Testament that they, I don't know, do we say they saw Jesus or uh -huh. we even say that, that Yahweh was Jesus, uh -huh. right? And that Elohim was God the Father. We saw back in, in Genesis, you know, one and two that you have the Elohist and the Yahwist and there are other chapters from Genesis that are from the Yahwist and they're different and they seem to be different ways of talking about the same God. But in our Christology or in our theology or both, the idea is that Jesus is Yahweh God the Father is El. I don't know that that's true. I can't know that. It does seem that when Jesus is being made to fit into the mold of the prophecies of the Old Testament, that it's not necessarily the case that Matthew thinks that they were writing about Jesus. He really knows his Old Testament. That's clear. He's able to bring all these references in, sometimes even bringing verses together, as you've pointed out, Ben. But in the end, if he knows his Old Testament as well as it looks like he does, then he knows just as you and I saw, Ben, that these prophecies have already been fulfilled. And yet here we go with the idea again of multiple fulfillments of prophecies. And that's happened. We see that. And that, and we have to renegotiate these texts anyway, right? And the whole of Christianity, in some sense, is a renegotiation of the Old Testament, right? So that it's relevant to us today. And we have to continue to do this, I think, every generation, Ben, that the text has to be renegotiated or it becomes irrelevant. I think that's about right. For Matthew, what he is doing with the text here is playing on the notes of the Jewish consciousness, because 
when the Jews would go into the synagogue and they would do readings, this was largely very short passages that were read. The scriptures weren't, you don't just sit down and read the whole thing from beginning to end. They were often proof texted. You would read a verse here and a verse there, and it would bring those phrases and those ideas to your mind, and you would meditate on that in and of itself on those particular verses. So that's what Matthew's doing here. He's taking these verses and he's doing a meditation on them. What's the meditation? It's about Jesus. It's about Christ. So every time that something happens, you find a verse in the Old Testament, it's about Christ. It's about Jesus, right? Right. Just like you were saying, I don't know that Matthew has to insist that that was the original intent. What he's saying is he's calling to that Jewish consciousness, these these words that these people have heard over and over again every time they go to synagogue and, and they hear these things recited, and he's calling to that, that spiritual um, muscle there, so to speak, mm. and tying it to Jesus. And that's how he's sort of awakening that consciousness within the Jewish mindset to accept Jesus as Messiah. Well put, Ben. You remind me of Aviva Zornberg, and, and that is a high compliment. <laughs> Very well put. So now we have the return from Egypt. Verse 19. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. Which means when we say Israel in this context, we mean that's the name of the United Nation, then of its northern kingdom, anciently, right? But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea and the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, Ben, in this verse, Matthew knows something we don't know, or something's going on. What's going on here? Something nobody knows. Something nobody knows, (laughs) right? It's not from the Old Testament, right? Yeah. What is he saying? He shall be called a Nazarene as a fulfillment of the prophets, and we don't find any such reference. The scholars don't. It's not you and me, Ben, right? We find that the scholars don't find this reference in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, the the prophecy that's quoted here as being fulfilled does not correspond to any passage in Jewish scripture. I have heard this before within Latter-day Saint circles used as, as evidence, this passage, that we're missing scripture, right? We're missing prophetic writings because Matthew says this is referring to a prophecy. We can't find the prophecy. That means that prophecy must be missing. You know, within our tradition, the Book of Mormon cites several prophets that are not present in Hebrew scriptures at all. It seems to be calling on this theme here that, hey, there's all these things fulfilled. I mean, all the things that Jesus did in his whole life were foretold before, every single detail. It's just that we're, we don't, you know, Matthew does a pretty good job of some of it, but we're missing all the scriptures that actually tell us the rest, or else we would have every single detail that's already foretold. That's kind of the idea. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 And you know, you remind me, Ben, that in the Quran, many of the prophets that are named in the Quran are the same prophets that we know in our tradition from the Bible. And yet there are prophets named that aren't in our tradition. Uh And the Islamic tradition teaches that there were 124,000 prophets. They're not all named in the Quran. That comes from a hadith, right? That comes from a saying of the Prophet Muhammad. But we do have some possible explanations for what Matthew's saying here, even if we don't 
find it in, you know, attested in the Old Testament. Yeah. It could mean not coming from Nazareth necessarily, although, okay, there are important figures from Nazareth. We mentioned the Nazarites, right? That's, that could be, this could be a misunderstanding, could be a textual corruption, something like that. I didn't read anything like uh, to do with the textual corruption from a scholar, but Nazarite, Nazarene, not the same word, right? So the Nazarites are people like Samson. And we, last time you and I couldn't, neither one of us could remember Ben, another one, Samuel. It is supposed to be Samuel. Okay. Hannah's son. Okay. I've done my homework, right? Samson and Samuel. They're set aside meaning consecrated, they're hagios, if you will, they're holy, hagios, right, the the Greek. Holy just means set aside, set apart. And so they're not going to cut their hair, they're not going to drink wine, they're not going to have contact with corpses. That's what it means to be a Nazarite. So it could be that. Although we don't know anything about Jesus cutting his hair, but he did drink wine and he did definitely have contact with corpses. Yes. Right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Although he made them not corpses, right? That's the idea. <laughs> Maybe he was making things right as a Nazarite. I don't know. But, you know, another another thing to note is that Nazareth, this place where Jesus is from, is an insignificant agricultural village, you know, just west, about 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. It's mentioned nowhere in the Hebrew Bible, and it's mentioned nowhere in other contemporary sources either. Now, Jerusalem is not the big deal in terms of size that you might think it is at this time in history. It is important because it has Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. It's the center of the world, the cosmic mountain. Just like now, it's important then to Jews, now to Jews, Christians, and Muslims, right? But it's not such a big town. Now, Galilee, on the other hand, where Jesus's ministry happens, is a pretty big deal. Nazareth, though, insignificant, right? So one of the things that that the scholars do when they look at historical Jesus is they try to find, and this is something I think we mentioned last episode in the introduction, they try to find these, these things that are unlikely to be said. To say that he's from Bethlehem, well, that fulfills a prophecy, right? This is what Luke is going to do. To say we that would expect from, that. Yeah. Right, yeah, you'd expect that, right? But to say he's from Nazareth, this is probably historical. Right? He's probably from Nazareth. <laughs> I think that's it for Matthew 2, Ben. Do you have anything to add? I do not. Okay, well, let's go into Luke 2 then. Great. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Augustus Caesar is the first Roman emperor. He's the adoptive son and heir of Julius Caesar, who was a dictator. And is and this idea of Caesar, Caesar becomes a title. It was actually Julius Caesar's name, and now it becomes a title to be a, a Caesar or Kaiser, right? Kaiser, yeah. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenaeus was governor of Syria. Now, what Luke is doing here is interesting because he's writing in the vein of a classic historiographer by giving us the year by naming the head of the government, right, who's in charge in that year. The Latin name of the Roman governor was Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, and that's Cyrenaeus, right, in the in the text. And according to Josephus, who's a historian, who, by the way, we I can't remember if we said this, Josephus was involved in a revolt against Rome. And so then he sort of becomes a turncoat and he becomes a collaborator with Rome. And so we take him with a grain of salt sometimes on the one hand. On the other hand, he's one of the few sources that we have outside of the Bible for the the mere existence of Jesus, right? So he is actually taken seriously and, and thought to be important for that reason, right? But according to Josephus, this governor 
wasn't in office before 6 CE, when the Roman rule by occupation began. And so Herod the Great, and he shows up later in the story, died in 4 BCE. So again, this gives us a sense of the timing of this. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Now, the interesting thing about this verse, Ben, is that when the Roman census registers people, they do it by place of residence, which for Mary and Joseph would be Nazareth, not Bethlehem, right? And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So yes, sure, a thousand years earlier in his ancestry, there was David. Imagine if everybody has to get up and go to the city of their ancestors a thousand years ago in the whole world. By the way, there's no attested you know, census that's empire-wide. I, I think we can say that by world is meant the Roman Empire. World just means, you know, cosmos means order. Yeah. So there's, there's this idea of the Roman world. And this time, anybody in this part of the world talks about the whole world. They just mean Rome. And by the way, it's not that they don't know. Marcus Aurelius spent his time as emperor fighting, you know, pushing back Germanic tribes on the northern borders of the empire. So it's not like they don't know that there's somebody else out there. But as far as they're concerned, the world is Rome. That's where the order is. Everything else is, there be dragons, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And so what they're looking for, and this is going to be important to this whole year, this whole story of Jesus, right? Because the Roman project is peace through victory. We're going to bring the whole world, including those parts that are outside of the world, into the world, right? Into our Roman world, into a Pax Romana, a Roman peace, by conquering by being victorious over them. We're going to bring them under Roman rule. And it's really important for Rome. And I think this comes into Christianity, unfortunately, right? Maybe fortunately and unfortunately, there's probably two sides to this coin, right? Order, obedience, right? These kind of, I think of military men, right? (laughs) Rightfully so, right? The King James here has this word taxed, which you know, other translations are going to say registered or it's a census. This is all kind of part of the same idea here. That's right. You know, like you were saying, this couldn't have happened when Luke is saying that it happened. Any of these censuses in that time would have been like somewhere around 28 BCE or 8 BCE or 14 CE. So just not close enough for this to have fit in the story. So it probably didn't happen like this. For me, this raises the question, why is Luke then telling it this way? Right. Why is he giving us this information if this is not how it really happened? There's a couple reasons, I think, that Luke is doing this. One, he needed a reason in the story for Mary and Joseph to be in Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus, right? Because it's the fulfillment of the scriptures. But censuses are a violation of Jewish law. Remember, When David called a census of the people, the idea was it was for attacks or for, and the attacks was meaning that he was going to go to war. So the the census is sort of this pretext or this preparation, I should say, to then go on a military campaign because you're going to find out who all of the males are, and then you're going to also gather tax, but then you're also going to record who you can conscript for the war. In the Old Testament, when David calls the census, he's cursed for it. And so having Jesus's family be subject to a census kind of shows like the humiliation of the people under the Roman oppression. 
I think it also shows how Jesus is born in circumstances that involve forces that are beyond the control of the Jewish people. Luke kind of leaves us with this question, how is God going to bring about his purposes even within these conditions where these people are completely helpless to this power of Rome that can do everything it wants, even call a census, which is a violation of God's law, right? You know, we're all subject to circumstances in our lives that are beyond our control. I think it might seem to some that even God has lost control of the cosmos. This is kind of an idea within the Jewish mindset of the time even, right? Because they've been taken into exile, they've come back, but they're still not the people that's been promised. Is God really going to fulfill his promise or has he lost control? You know, there's this question all over in the Psalms. This question comes up in Lamentations. And so how is God going to make this right? Or from an ancient, you know, Israelite perspective, has he just gone missing again? I have to back up a verse to make this reading work. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Now, the interesting thing to me about verse 5 is that Luke doesn't say anything about what Joseph thinks about Mary being pregnant. What is his understanding of this pregnancy? Nothing, right? Isn't that interesting? We'd have to go to Matthew to find out about that. So again, really different tellings of the same story. If it's the same story, they're just really different tellings. And so we don't know anything about what Joseph thinks about Mary's pregnancy. Again, later on, we'll find out that it looks like Mary and Joseph don't know as much about Jesus as as we thought they would after reading Matthew 1 and Luke 1. And we also find that the text calls Joseph the father of Jesus. So there's some things here that are unexpected upon close inspection, right? And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, Ben, the second reason why Luke would tell the story this way is so that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, so that it can fulfill the prophecy that said that he would come from the city of David, right? That's the more obvious reason. Now, this inn. It's not a commercial inn that we're talking about. The word kataluma implies that this is probably just some ordinary house in Judea. And what that means is that the animals slept indoors. They slept in the house on the ground floor while the people who lived in the house slept in a loft above them. And during the day, the animals wouldn't be in the house. And so you have this feeding trough, which would serve as the the manger, as the King James Version has it. But maybe a feeding trough gives a, a clearer picture because the manger brings up the idea of what is this like this book holder shape thing, right? I don't know what to <laughs> how to yeah. describe it. Yeah, like the one the Muslims use for the Quran because you can't put it on the floor and they sit on the floor, so they have this crisscross, <laughs> you know. And we see something like that in some of these nativity scenes, right? And then of course swaddling babies. We call this in our family wrapping our child like a burrito. This is just what's done. It's still done this way, right? It helps the the baby to feel secure and sleep, right? It worked for us. I don't know about you. Now we have the shepherds and the angels. Again, no wise men, instead shepherds and angels. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, Ben, this same country, which just means the same precinct, right? Nearby. Bethlehem The little town of Bethlehem that we sing about is still a little town today. And right next to it, there's a place called Beit Sahur. 
Beit Sahur is the place likely where the shepherds were, just next to Bethlehem. And it happens to be the place where Sahar Kumsiya, a Palestinian Latter-day Saint who wrote a book called Peace for a Palestinian, lived. She now lives in Idaho, where she teaches at BYU-Idaho. We interviewed her today, the day we're recording this, same day, on her book, Peace for a Palestinian. And so I thought I'd plug that here on our sister podcast, that is, on Latter-day Contemplation. Should be coming out at the same time as this episode. And so they're keeping over their flock. Now, there's some interesting language here in the original that doesn't necessarily show up in the King James Version. What you get is some militaristic language. Not only is it militaristic, but it's Hebraizing, meaning Luke is trying to make his Greek sound like Hebrew. Oh, interesting. And this is in the translation of Sarah Rudin, published by, I think it's Modern Library. She translates on guard to safeguard their flock. And so what's Hebraizing about it is that they're on guard to safeguard, right? You get that kind of repetition. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Not only that, but in the next verse, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. For sore afraid, Rudin has fearful on a fearsome scale. There it is again. Fearful on a fearsome. They feared fearingly. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Very Semitic. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And of course, the angel of the Lord here is just in the Greek, it's, and Rudin gives us the translation, a messenger from the Lord. She makes it a point, by the way, for anyone interested in her translation, she makes it a point to follow the manuscripts, even in capitalization. And she goes out of her way. And I think this is helpful. And it's something we've done on the podcast, on both this podcast and our sister podcast, is to take some of the most theologically loaded terms and translate them differently if possible, if, if it's still true to the original such that it would maybe jar you out of your, right? It kind of wake you from your slumber of, I already know what this says, right? Yeah, nudge you into reading it differently. Yes, exactly. So it turns out that there's no capitalization to Lord in the text, in the original, right, in the Greek. And it's not the angel of the Lord, but a messenger from the Lord, lowercase l. And we already know that angel and messenger are the same. Angelos just means messenger. And we say angel. By the way, these men are probably staying with their flocks all night because it's lambing season, and so they're they're looking after the ewes and their offspring. That's interesting, Christopher, because some of the commentary I read said that the shepherds being in the fields doesn't indicate anything about the season of Jesus's birth, that they could have been there at any time. No kidding. <laughs> I would say, again, it's probably lambing season. And by the way, it, you've probably heard in Latter-day Saint circles that Jesus wasn't born in December, in the winter. And by the way, if you're in this part of the world in the winter, it's winter. It snows in Jerusalem. Not often, not as often as Utah, but it snows in Jerusalem. And so you wouldn't necessarily have shepherds in the field, is what I've heard. And so here you're in the spring, it's lambing season, this is what's going on, but not according to your studies. I have heard what you're saying before. I don't know enough about it to say it myself. It's just the scholarly commentary I was reading on this specific verse literally said, shepherds in the fields does not indicate anything about the season of Jesus's birth. How about that? So, so I don't know. <laughs> I didn't get from from my studies you know, into the, the commentary from the scholars that it's spring, but I did get it that it's lambing season. And I wouldn't know lambing season from spring or summer. Do you, Ben? I don't. Yeah. You can drop us a comment or or send us a message and let us know if you know. And how you know, please. (laughs) References, citations, sources. And the angel said unto them, fear not. Remember, they were 
fearing fearfully, right? In my translation. Or what was yours, Ben? Fearing fearingly? Yeah, fearing fearingly. Yeah. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, one of the terms that's theologically loaded that Rudin translates differently from Savior is the term that's translated Savior, right? Which could be rescuer. Mm. There are some times, we'll get to them, where she actually translates preserver because the, the idea in this context, right, of immortality is actually not rotting, very literal not rotting. And so a savior in that case becomes a preserver, right? So a rescuer, a preserver, a savior. It's also interesting to know that the title savior is actually rare in the gospels, right? So it shows up here, but it doesn't show up a lot. And yet it is commonly used, on the other hand, of the Roman emperor. And Israel has long used this particular political title for God. So it is used in the Old Testament. It's a political title there too for God. It is used in this context for the Roman emperor. It's not usually used for Jesus. Now, I have a quote here I want to read from John Dominic Crossan, the preeminent historical Jesus scholar from his book, God and Empire. I love that you got this quote. I like this one. He says, imagine this question. There was a human being in the first century who was called divine, son of God, God, and God from God, whose titles were Lord, Redeemer, Liberator, and Savior of the world. Who was that person? Most people who know the Western tradition would probably answer, unless alerted by the questions to obviousness, and that's probably where you are right now, right? Jesus of Nazareth. And most Christians probably think that those titles were originally created and uniquely applied to Christ. But before Jesus ever existed, all those terms belonged to Caesar Augustus. To proclaim them of Jesus, the Christ, was thereby to deny them of Caesar the Augustus. Christians were not simply using ordinary titles applied to all sorts of people in the East. They were taking the identity of the Roman emperor and giving it to a Jewish peasant. Either that was a peculiar joke or a very low lampoon, or it is what the Romans called majestas, and we call high treason. And that, Ben, high treason, that they'll crucify you for. And so you see, again, even king back in Matthew 2, right? To say that that Jesus is king, when you're talking to Herod, the Magi are saying, what is that? That's subversive, right? Yeah. And one note here about that quote that I, I noticed, he says, to proclaim them of Jesus the Christ was thereby to deny them of Caesar the Augustus. I like how he equivocates these here. Jesus the Christ, we've talked about this. This is, you know, Joshua or Savior, the anointed one. Okay, as if we were to translate those words into our, you know, common language in English. Caesar, the Augustus, Augustus means worshipped. And so we have this juxtaposition here of Jesus to Caesar. Jesus is supposed to be worshipped. In fact, in the story, it says that the shepherds come and worship him. And when the wise men come over in Matthew, right, they ask Herod, hey, we've seen his star. We've come to worship him. This is subversive. This is treasonous because they're actually using this title of the worshipped one for Jesus when it's supposed to be used for Caesar the Augustus, the worshipped one. That's right. 
There's something else I'm tempted to go into now, but I'll wait until we come to the verse render unto Caesar, right? Oh, yeah. I'll just, I'll try to insert here a point for the listener. Carry the one listener. Typically what happens is when Caesar dies, he becomes deified. Eventually, we get that even living Caesar is God in some sense. And of course, this is, again, this is happening in the Old Testament too, right? The, the one who rules is God's representative on earth. We get the same thing in the Christian tradition in the Middle Ages with the divine right of kings. And it takes the enlightenment to get us out of that, right? And yet we still have a British royal family. If you're listening from the UK, and I know we have listeners in the UK, please explain this to us. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, before we go into what they're saying, the heavenly host again, host means army. This is an army numerous as the stars. And we see this in the Hebrew Bible, right? God is leading this army as numerous as the stars across the sky. Here we are again, Christopher, with the stars. Right. Right. You know, the shepherds are out in their fields. They're looking up into the heavens. We've got the hosts of heaven, this army, as numerous as the stars. There's something going on with the stars here, just like there was with the wise men, it seems. That's right. And so what do they say? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Or is that what they say, Ben? (laughs) Well, this was interesting. I, I had heard this verse quoted different ways and with slightly different meanings. And and I remember this was maybe several days ago, we got on a call and I, I had you try to parse through the Greek on and figuring out, you know, maybe a, a better way of, of translating this. And I don't know, I'm going to just let you take it because it kind of got, I kind of got lost. <laughs> well, let's look at, at some of the translations we have from those who know better than I do. Here's Rudin. Glorious gods in the highest places and on earth among human beings, peace is for those who have found favor with him. From the NRSV, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. Now, other ancient authorities did read peace, goodwill among people, but we do have both Rudin and the NRSV scholars giving us that peace is for those who have found favor with God. Yeah, I have heard a translation that goes something like, peace toward men of goodwill. Now, again, if you are people of goodwill, who makes you people of goodwill? In an ancient mindset, God. Ergo, equivalent. I don't know, Ben. <laughs> right. But you know, we did look at the Greek together. You're right. You mentioned that, and I concur with, with Rudin and Attridge. You know, Attridge being the editor of my study Bible, they, they know what they're doing. Now, It is also interesting to note that this is a hymnic commentary, right? That this quote that we're getting, that it's actually a song of praise, right? It's meant to be poetic. so It is, yeah. An equivalent translation isn't necessarily as important as the poetic value. That's right. And and also, let's go back and talk about the Roman emperor again, because peace is something that comes from the Roman emperor in the context in which this is being written. So to claim that it's going to be delivered by God, and it's actually juxtaposed with God's glory, you know, that, that in other words, that, that Jesus is God. Pax Romana, not Pax Dei. <laughs> right, exactly. That Jesus is God rather than Caesar, right? This is, again, subversive. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, 
and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. There was a comma before babe. It's only the babe lying in the manger. (laughs) There's something I, I didn't mention earlier, Ben. I want to bring it up now. In Luke, Mary is called Mariam. In Matthew, she's called Maria. Two different names for the same Mary, right? This is in the Greek. They actually, it's written differently. Right. It would They would be transliterations from okay. the original language yeah. in the Greek, right? But you get Maria and you get Mariam. Mariam is as she's known in the Islamic tradition, right? And that's closer to the Hebrew. Yes. Miriam, Mariam, from, you know, Moses' sister, right? So Miriam, yes, Mariam. Mm-hmm. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. Now, I have a note here about the translation because the idea that they made known abroad what they were told, right, about the child makes it sound like they went, you know, to the to the ends of the earth like the apostles were told to do. Yeah. To the forefront. Yeah. But that's not what the text says, right? Here's Rudin's translation. And once they'd seen, they they revealed what they what had been said to them about this child. They just revealed it. It doesn't say anything about to whom? Presumably to the people around them. They don't have to go anywhere to do this. Well, they told people. Yes. You know, a couple verses later, it says, Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart, right? There's sort of a contrast here. That's a really good point, Ben. And I know you have more to say about Mary keeping these things in her heart. (laughs) We'll get to that. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And by the way, Rudin translates that, and Mariam kept these things safe in her memory, considering in her heart what they might mean. Mm. The question you brought up, Ben, in our pre-show discussion is, how does Luke know this? And it's a great question because it helps us think about Luke and what he's up to and what his sources are and how this all works. Will you go into that a little bit more, Ben? Yeah. One comment I wanted to make just about the circumstances presented here in this narrative, in this story. You know, we talked about earlier, why is it that Luke is placing the family here in Bethlehem in these humble circumstances, sort of at the mercy, so to speak, of the Roman census and all these things happening out of their control? And, you know, where is God, right? How is God going to deliver people from these circumstances? And yet these shepherds in all of this they find God, right? They come and they they find Jesus. And you know, it made me think like when we kind of feel like stuff's out of control in the world or maybe just in our personal lives, how is it that we find God in those circumstances? Maybe we need to go out in a field at night like the shepherds, right? And watch the stars like the magi. <laughs> Maybe the direction that we receive might be something unconventional, unexpected. Might we find God in an unlikely place? Yeah. Right. I, I think one of the things about this story is, is for me, it just tries to open my mind a little bit to finding experiences where God can be present that I may not have expected. And I think that that's kind of what's going on here in, in one way with the shepherds, right? They, they're finding an experience with God that was completely unexpected for them in a place that they had not thought it would be. Yeah. This idea about Mary treasuring all these words and pondering them in her heart. I, I like that Rudin translation. I think that's interesting because to me, it's not just her heart, but it's her mind and her heart. She's not just thinking about these things. She's feeling something. But there does seem to be something going on here with Luke's sources. He he seems to be 
referencing a source that would have been identified with Mary or intimate with Mary. And we don't know what this source would be, you know, like these are unique statements from Luke, right? Nobody else attests the story of, of the shepherds. And so, you know, the, the scholarly thing would be to say, okay, well, Luke made up this detail because it fits in his narrative. That's totally fine. But I think the point here is what is, what is Luke trying to tell us about the source, right? And I think what Luke is trying to tell us is, hey, I have an inside story, right? I have details about this. Or you know, when he says back in, in chapter one, I've, I've searched this out. I've understood this. And this, this is important information that I'm going to convey to you. And either this source is unique or it, it only survived in Luke. Or like we've said, maybe Luke made this up. This phrase happens again in verse 51 later in the story. And and again, there's also other unique material in here about the intimate circumstances of the family, the situation in the temple that we're going to get to. To me, these all kind of just point to Luke referencing some source that seems to be intimate to Mary. Yeah. I want to say something about the sources and about scholarship. You know, these authors are telling stories We've dealt with this, you know, exhaustively, I think, last year in covering the Old Testament. If you're just joining us, these stories that are told are always true. And they're sometimes historically accurate. We don't think that all of the things that we're reading here happened historically. And we even have counter evidence that they did, right? But we do think they're true. And the way that the ancient mindset works and the way that that history works is they're not necessarily interested in history, even if they had the tools, which they don't. Because for history, you need things like knowledge of foreign languages, anthropology, archaeology. They don't have any of this. They're not even interested in it. They don't know that they don't have these things because they're not looking for them. They're telling stories that are true stories, meaning they tell us something about the nature of God, the nature of man, meaning humankind, and the nature of the universe the cosmos, and the relationship among the three. That's what's important to take away from this. And I want to say something more about the stars, Ben. You got me thinking, you know, I attended a lecture once by Tadek Ramadan. He came all the way from the UK. If it was the Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City was the reason he came. But one of the smaller mosques in the Salt Lake, greater Salt Lake area, had him come to give a lecture on nature. It was something like three or four hours long. I was there. I remember Dan Peterson of BYU was there, Dr. Peterson, one of our Arabic professors. Did you have Dr. Peterson when you were studying at BYU? I did. I didn't have him for a specific course, but he did come and teach some of the courses that I had. So, (laughs) Yeah. I had him as a capstone advisor at the end of my MESA program, Middle East Studies Arabic. I know somebody made a recording and I've been trying for years to track it down. Those three or four hours went by so fast. And what Tariq Ramadan focused on was the idea that the scriptures, and he's coming from his perspective as a Muslim, right? Thinking of the Quran in particular, they tell us to look to the stars, to look to the the stars for signs. And we're not looking up. We're all looking down at our smartphones or whatever, right? And we're not looking up. And even, you know, Ramadan, the the Muslims still use a, a lunar calendar. And Ramadan, therefore, is going to move around in a solar calendar. And so it makes it really hard if you're living in a, in a country 
which even Muslim countries use the solar calendar secularly, to actually plan ahead. And so one thing you can do is to calculate when Ramadan will begin because it depends on the new moon, right? So you can calculate this mathematically. And one of the most interesting books I've ever read, I've read a lot of books, and this is a very short book, and it's a great way to learn about Islamic law, is a little book called Caesarean Moon Births, a very clever title by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, co-founder of Zaytuna College, the first American accredited institution, Muslim accredited institution of higher learning in America. That's a mouthful. Anyway, (laughs) he points out that what the Quran tells us, what Sharia tells us, what Islamic law tells us is that we are to look to the skies. I say we, I mean Muslims, right? For when Ramadan begins, right? You have to actually cite the new moon. And so it's an argument against calculating it. Interesting. And so it's one more instance of, you know, we're not looking up. And I know Latter-day Saints, personally, this is anecdotal, I know Latter-day Saints were making it a point to look for the signs in the heavens, and most of us aren't. We're just not. (laughs) There's something for us to think about. That makes me think about some more things, Christopher. This would have been last year when we talked about Abraham, particularly the Pearl of Great Price book of Abraham and, you know, him looking at the stars and everything. And and I, I was commenting on how in our more modern society, with all the light pollution that we have, we don't seem to be as focused on the stars. You know, we're, we're indoors, it seems a lot more, and we have that light pollution that is obscuring a lot of the majesty of the stars. When you go out, you can see stars, but they're just not as plentiful as you might otherwise see for the most part when we're in cities and so forth. I just realized that our tie to that is not as tight as the ancient people's was. Right. When they look up and they they see that. I read a book not too long ago that talked about how the very fact that humans could look up in the sky and see stars and just wonder about them was the whole driving force behind science to begin with. Because it was like, what is that? It's so mysterious. You've got to understand what it is, you know? <laughs> yes. And yet irony of ironies, that same science born of looking up at the stars leads us to this place where we no longer look up at the stars. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> that is ironic. So I also thought of a poem by Walt Whitman. Have you heard this one, Christopher, When I Heard the Learned Astronomer? It's short. No, I haven't. Here's Walt Whitman. When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. When the proofs, the figures, were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer, where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out I wandered off by myself, in the mystical moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. Hmm. If you live somewhere where there's too much light and too much other pollution in the air, take a trip. Go somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you that my experience, uh, there's nothing like being in the middle of the ocean, Ben. You can come close in the middle of a desert, but man, there's nothing like being in the middle of the ocean. You You cannot believe how many stars there are. You can't see them here in the city. You've got to get out there in the desert, out in the middle of the ocean, and see what you're missing. It's incredible. And one more thing, Ben, we've got to move on. We're talking a lot about stars. One more thing. I had a retinal scan done the second to last time I got glasses. They'd never been offered to me before and hasn't been since. And when I looked at that image, they sent it to me by email. I was shocked. 
I was in awe because I thought I was looking into outer space. I thought I was looking at nebulae, galaxies. That's what it looks like hmm. inside. Reflected in our eyes, huh? My eye, yeah. That microcosm within of the macrocosm without. As above, so below. Yeah. And let's not forget that these magi we spoke of earlier in the second chapter of Matthew, this is how they did what they did, right? This is how they found Jesus. And so they say, wise men still seek him. And so now we go into the part where Jesus is named. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus is presented at the temple next. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And actually, present in King James Version is translated by root and is dedicate. All firstborns are dedicated to the Lord. And, and that's all firstborns of all species, I should say. And then there becomes an exception for humans. And that's because animal sacrifices are able to buy back. So they're going to make animal sacrifices instead of dedicating Jesus you know, as their firstborn. Because after Hebrew children are spared from the 10th plague in Egypt which is the death of the firstborn, then animal sacrifices can buy back or redeem the firstborn from that point on. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Rudin has it, as it was written in the Lord's law, every male offspring that opens the womb of its mother for the first time will be designated as set aside for the Lord. And that's in effect again until after the 10th plague doesn't take the firstborn male children of the Israelites. Now that's a quotation, by the way, from Exodus, right? 13.2. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So those are the animal sacrifices that then become the redemption for the firstborn son. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. Ben, I'm going to ask you in a minute to tell me something about Simeon, but first, the Holy Ghost. This is one of those terms that Rudin goes out of her way to translate differently from how we've been translating, right? King James Version gives us the Holy Ghost. What we're talking about here is the Holy, by the way, she keeps holy. Hagios, the Greek Hagios means set aside. I mentioned that earlier. Here she calls it the holy life breath. We're talking about that same ruach from the Old Testament that's the spirit, the wind, the life breath that is breathed into Adam. It's all of the above. Right. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost, again, the holy life breath, that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is Simeon. And he came by the spirit into the temple, or as Rudin has it, under the guidance of the holy life breath, he came into the temple precinct. I think she makes this distinction, Ben, because the temple is large and the temple has parts that not everyone can access, right? And so we're not talking about Simeon or later Jesus being in those parts of the temple that only the priest can access, but just in the temple precinct, right? So he's guided by the holy life breath into the temple precinct. Then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, so he's holding the baby. And he says, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. Or as Rudin has it, now master, you're letting your slave go in peace according to your promise. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, 
or rescue, right? As Rudin has it, since my eyes have seen the rescue you bring. Salvation in this context, Ben, it's more like consolation, redemption. So there are different words that we could use. And, and those that's from my study Bible, right? From, from Atridge or from the NRSV study Bible. Salvation can be consolation, redemption. There's nuances to this term if we get away from the theologically loaded interpretation, right? And that's something that we noted in our conversation before we started recording, right? That the context of the translator is always a part of the translator's understanding of the text that she has to bring from a, from another context and from another language into her own context and language. Theology is always going to be part of that context. We can say that Rudin not having a horse in the race might give us a, a more neutral translation, but at the same time, one could argue well, her horse in the race may be Jesus is not the son of God. She owns the arena, you know. <laughs> and of course, you know, we've already dealt with the son of God as the title of a Roman emperor. We know that if you are the son of the emperor, whether you're a natural born son or as the Caesars got smarter, they would adopt someone who would be adept, right, to be the, the next emperor. And you would be the adopted son of the Roman emperor and you would be the son of God, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Or as Rudin has it, as a light for revelation to other nations and glory for your people Israel. Now, who is this Simeon, Ben? And then Hannah or Anna, right? As she appears in the text, the Greek is Hannah. Who are these people? Where do they come from? What's going on? We're at the temple. We're dedicating the son, although we're not dedicating him. We're, we're making the sacrifice instead. That's how this works, right? According to Exodus. Who are these people? I'm going to relate this first to what I was saying earlier about this, some sort of intimate source, right? You know, Luke seems to be referencing this source of, of someone that interacts with Joseph and Mary and Jesus, right? This is what happened with the shepherds. This is what's going on here at the temple. This is going to happen later at the temple when he's 12. It's just these these intimate interactions between some person or, or group of individuals and the, the family, you know, Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And it's almost like they're, again, it's this, this intimate source that Luke is, is pulling from. And who these people are, these are witnesses, right? These are people that are witnessing the coming of the Messiah. And Luke is putting them in there as, look, here's, you know, here's proof, here's a witness of what's happening, right? It's not just my word. You know, these are oral traditions, probably, that reference people, oh, there was a person that saw Jesus when he was born, and there was this person, right? He's compiling, as we were saying, he's he's done this research, he's compiling these different sources, or maybe these come from from a single source that then pulled them from other sources, accounts, oral accounts from people that, you know, date back to this time or somewhere about that are going to be talking about some experience somebody had with Jesus, right? Right. I'm going to read the next verse first in KJV, then Rudin, and ask you to, to note the difference. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. That's KJV, now Rudin. And there were the child's mother and father astonished over the things said about the child. What do you notice? This I noticed also in my reading of King James and then NRSV. King James 
mentions Joseph by name, but then says his mother doesn't mention Mary. And it seems a strange construction of the sentence to have it that way. Why mention Joseph by name, but not Mary? Well, it turns out that in the Greek, it doesn't say Joseph. It says his father. And so when we get these other translations, NRSV and and Rudin and so forth, it doesn't say Joseph, it says his father. But in the King James Version, there does seem to be, this seems to me, a pretty obvious tip of the theological hand. Yes. That the translators of the KJV were very uncomfortable with putting explicitly from this third-person omniscient narrator that Joseph was the father of Jesus. And so they're not going to say his father. They're just going to name him and then say his mother. Once you start reading these translations, that seems to come out. So it seems that we have a couple of things that the King James scholars lacked. We have better manuscripts. Yeah. And we have a better understanding of the historical Jesus and his historical setting. We know that the Son of God is an earthly title given to kings. And so with that, we can distinguish between who is his father and whether he's the Son of God, quote unquote, as a title. Well, the point you make about manuscripts is a good one. You know, I I said, well, the King James translators, this, and, and it's possible they're working off a manuscript that does say Joseph because some earlier translator actually made that change in the translation rather than them. And and that I don't know. Yeah, well, and, and I didn't mean to imply that necessarily, but I can say this. I know that the Greek that they had to work with, the Textus Receptus, right? Erasmus provided that by collecting as best he could, the best Greek manuscripts he could find. And then, and here's the here's the caveat. And then where he couldn't find a Greek text, he back translated into Greek the Latin Vulgate. So there's that too. Well, there's where you're going to have a lot of stuff like this maybe happen with the Latin Vulgate, right? Because the Latin Vulgate is the Catholic quote unquote translation. And there's going to be some very distinct theological reasons for them to do something like this, right? Joseph and his mother, not say his father. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. You know, I noticed too that that last verse, it was a little bit convoluted, the English was, and and we've talked about why. This verse is a little strange too. There may be, again, something going on here that's not quite obvious. There seem, Luke seems to know something that we don't know, and he's not actually telling us either. He, he's telling us without telling us. And so, by the way, that's spoken against, you could read as contradicted. Rudin has it as contradicted. And you don't need Rudin for that, because spoken against is contradicted. Contra, against, dicted, spoken, right? So sometimes it helps us to look at these different translations and see things that might not otherwise jump out at us. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Or as Rudin has it, but a sword will pierce your own life too, so that the motives of many hearts will be unveiled. This verse 35, I've never really understood it. I don't know what this is really talking about. I'd like to read from a commentary because I don't have a good handle on it myself. (laughs) So for what it's worth, I'll read into the record from Rudin, her footnote on this verse. Simeon now turns to the oracular mode with its familiar riddling manner. The falling may allude, but probably not exclusively, to the military disasters to come for Judea. Rising again is the term for resurrection of the dead. Jesus' mission or fate is a sign fraught in many ways— 
just two are the long-prevailing secrecy about his identity and the contrast between the shameful death and the glorious return to life. The mother's grief is foretold, perhaps with an allusion to a scene at the cross. Now, I'm inserting a comment here. Let's remember that these texts were written a generation after those events already happened. Right. In John 19.34, going back to Rudin, Jesus' side is pierced by a spear. The end of the speech points to apocalyptic ideas. Unveiling is literally what the Greek word for apocalypse means. So my translation in verse 32 above is revelation. That's Rudin. Okay. And now we have Hannah. Anna, she appears in, in the English. Hannah, she appears in the Greek. Now, she has ancestry in Israel from the tribe of Asher, and so this gives her credentials as a prophet. And this idea that she's an aged widow, that gives her a special status. And of course, the fact that she's always in the temple gives us that she's pious too. And she's a prophetess, verse 36. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity or from the time she was a young unmarried girl. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Now, fourscore and four means 84, for those who don't know. And of course, we're dealing again with the temple precinct. It's not like she's in the Holy of Holies, though she is a prophet. I don't know whether she's a priestess. She's not necessarily in the Holy of Holies. She's in the temple precinct. And, you know, it may not have been that unusual for someone who's a woman who's widowed at a young age, never to remarry. You know, mature women were less eligible than their spouses. You know, the the men could remarry easily, the women not necessarily so. Ben, you and I, we talked about Deborah as a prophetess when we covered the Old Testament I don't know that we mentioned all the prophetesses that we could have mentioned or, or really, you know, made them stand up. But there's Miriam, there's Deborah, there's Huldah, and there's Noadiah. All four of them, women prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. I remember those names. Now, Luke, he also has this penchant for juxtaposing male and female characters. So we don't get Anna's words, you know, cited directly, but we do get that Anna sort of echoes Simeon's prophetic speech about the redemption of Jerusalem, and that being analogous to the consolation of Israel. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And now we have the return to Nazareth. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. By the way, everywhere we read city, we could say town, and it's probably a better translation, right? Or village. Village, yeah. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then we get the famous story of the boy Jesus in the temple. And Luke is the only gospel author who gives us anything on the boyhood of Jesus. There are apocryphal writings. There's the infancy gospel with more details. But this is it in the canonical gospels. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now here we have Joseph and his mother again. Rudin gives us, and his parents, right? Not and Joseph and his mother, and his parents didn't know. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. 
This may seem strange to us that they're not paying attention where their son is, but as Sahar Kumsiya said when we interviewed her today on Latter day Contemplation, when she got together with her family, and I know you know this, Ben, when it comes to the Arabs, that she has a hundred relatives that get together from right around where she lives, right? From right around where, where she's from. They all get together for holidays, right? A hundred of them. So you're, you're surrounded by friends, family, kinsfolk, right? And and you assume that somebody knows where he is and he, he's not going to go very far. Well, yeah. If you go somewhere, you all in different cars. And so, you know, when everybody goes back, it's just everybody get in the cars and you have kids ride with other kids, you know, cousins in their cars, right? So you don't always know where everybody is. Now that you put it that way, Ben, <laughs> I have a daughter who's she has a complex because these kind of things keep happening to her and only her and our family. We went in two cars to a restaurant once and both mom in her car and dad in his car left without her. <laughs> yeah. Both thinking she was in the other car, right? <laughs> That's what happens. 45. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctor's or in the temple precinct among the learned men, right? The scholars, both hearing them and asking them questions and all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Now it's interesting because you get the impression reading this. I think I've been misreading this and I think I was helped in misreading it at church. I'm not sure, but maybe I should take full responsibility. I have been misreading this, Ben. It's not that they're surprised at the answers he's giving. Well, maybe they're surprised at his answers, but they're not asking him questions. He's asking them questions. But even that is precocious enough. And that's the point of the story, right? That he could have this dialogue. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Now, this is the one verse where the King James Version does give us thy father and I. Yeah. Referring to Joseph. But that's because it's juxtaposing where he says, I was in my father's house. And that's according to NRSV. I think King James gives us, I was about, about my, my father's, father's business, business, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's capital F as they have it in the King James Version. Your father and I is what the Rudin translation reads, just like the King James Version. Yeah, a few things about this story, Christopher. You know, in verse 46, it says, after three days, they found him, right? This is that scriptural motif of after three days. Right. This three days indicates a period of suffering or intense anxiety, right? Of looking for him. Not necessarily three calendar days. Exactly. This is the quote unquote after three days. So this comes up in Esther, in Jonah, in the Psalms. Even Abraham has a three-day journey to Moriah to sacrifice his son, right? So these are all times of anxiety and anticipation and suffering even. Of course, that is in the Gospels. It shows up especially with the death and resurrection of Christ. So there's some theological questions here about Jesus's interaction with the teachers in the temple. Is Jesus being taught by them or are they being taught by him? Maybe both. It seems that he is asking the questions, but the text does also mention that his answers- Understanding and answers. Right, his understanding and answers, yeah. So I know in the Joseph Smith translation of this verse, it changes the pronouns and it makes it what you might say is more theologically consistent with the idea that Jesus was omniscient from the start. So he's like John. Joseph Smith is like John, right? Yeah. You know, I, t I knew I had been helped along in my misreading. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say I'm rather partial to the idea here that Jesus was listening attentively 
He was asking really good questions. Yes. And he was impressing all of these by his humility and his acumen as a learner, not just as a teacher, right? So these verses to me demonstrate humility, and I like them the way they are. I like that too, yeah. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I was about my father's business or in my father's house, as the NRSV has it? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And, and this is, by the way, verse 50, and they understood not the saying which he spake unto them is one of those verses where I scratch my head and think, do Mary and Joseph not know what we know from reading the last chapters we read from Matthew 1 and Matthew 2? And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart again. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And that's it for the childhood. And that's it for the chapter. Yeah. The difference in translation there of verse 49, Christopher, you know, about my father's business versus in my father's house, that seems like a big difference to me. Do you have any sense of why there's that difference? Is King James working off a different text than NRSV here? or? So I don't know, Ben. You know, I haven't looked at the manuscripts neither the ones that the King James scholars use nor the ones that we have. What I do do is I look at the interlinear Greek, you know, with an English translation or just the Greek that we have today. And what I can see is that it clearly says that he was in the house of his father. And that seems to make more sense in the context of the story. I mean, you know, we have this idea about my father's business means what I'm doing but the question is, where are you, not what are you doing, right? Yeah, where where have you been for these quote-unquote three days, right? Now, again, it could be that idiomatically, culturally speaking, sociolinguistically speaking, right, that if you're in your father's house, you're about your father's business. But I don't know. I'm going to go with Allahu Alam. God knows best. <laughs> and that's yeah. it. Anything to add, Ben, in closing? No, that's great. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our editors and the rest of the team at Latter-day Peace Studies. Thank you for your attendance, for your participation. Please continue to send us those messages and let us know what you think of the new format with us reading the text into the record, you know, so that you can listen to not only commentary, our thoughts and, and ideas and the commentary that we bring from the scholars that we study, but also the text itself in the King James Version, and we'll see you next week.